We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Greg Olson, and I'm thrilled to introduce my new podcast, TE1. TE1 will chronicle a 60-year evolution of the tight end position, from its origins as an obscure, overlooked blocking role to the versatile superstar position that it is today. I'll explore the evolution of the position through conversations with some of the all-time game-changing tight ends. And just like the incredible tight ends we sit down with on my new show, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. This truck is all about grit, strength, and dependability. The same attributes it takes to be a tight end. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. This is Tom Leander, and you're listening to the Timeline podcast with Mike and Sam. He elevates and detonates. Welcome to the timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. Even though the Suns aren't playing, I, I feel like we have a lot to talk about this week. My name is Mike. Sam, I'm going to start with a question for you right away. Fire. Steve Nash, will he be a great coach or oh the greatest coach? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Uh, yeah, I don't know that there's a way to answer that, right? I, I mean, I think people have takes on both sides of that and... Uh, Every time I see both sides of that take, I'm like, how do you, you nobody knows. Well, like, the other, we're the only other t- guessing. The other side to, to an answer to that question is that he will be a bad coach. Um, yeah, I, fuck, dude. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I think, well, what do you think? You start. Well, okay. So I think that this is a very unique situation. And I th- feel like a lot of the context of the hiring has been left out of it. That's That's the important place to start, I think. Yeah. yeah, because it's clear that when you have a superstar at the level of Kevin Durant or LeBron James, those superstars are running your franchises. We've seen it go as far as LeBron James signing single-year deals with player options in the second year to hold the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers accountable to make sure he gets everything he wants year over year. That's the level these superstars are willing to go because they know even if they get injured, they're going to get a max. And guess what? Kevin Durant did. That's exactly what happened for Kevin Durant. So we understand the kind of leverage they have over the teams that they have. And that means that Kevin Durant on the Nets is essentially making the hire for coach because anyone he says no to, they can't hire. And whoever they hire, he has to say yes to. Obviously, Steve Nash has a previous relationship with Kevin Durant from the Warriors where he was a consultant. He worked almost exclusively with Kevin Durant from what I've seen. 
and that mean, means that that superstar bought into it. And, and that likely means that Kyrie Irving, who is important to a lesser extent than Kevin Durant, but still important because he's the type of guy, I think, that can make trouble in the locker room if he's not happy, obviously must have bought into it too. So to me, like that's the most important thing. And from that perspective, the Nets made the right hire, right? You're making them happy. Now, whether or not he's going to be really good at being a coach... I really, I, who knows? I really don't know. And 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 it's good to make your superstars happy. I think it was important to start there because I think that's why Nash was hired. Um, we are dealing with, I think, two of the most fickle superstars in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important to note. So, you know, my initial reaction to the news was obviously I'm happy for Steve Nash that he's getting this opportunity in the NBA. But my second reaction was, oh, God, he's doomed. You know, like there's, <laughs> there, is, there is a tint of that in there because I, I don't know. I don't know to what extent he's going to be eaten alive by Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, and, right. and to what extent it's now going to be easy to use him as a scapegoat if this right. team that has championship aspirations 100%. doesn't get quite to where they want to go with a rookie coach in, in year one. So it does worry me because, you know, Steve Nash, I mean, I became a Phoenix Suns fan because of Steve Nash. He is my right. childhood Same. idol. There are few NBA players that I am as attached to on an emotional level. And so, you know, this is his legacy now at stake here. He's going through the same sort of career moves as many other former NBA players um, have gone through in the past, but this time for me, it feels a lot more personal. Uh, so I'm worried. I, I definitely am worried that uh, it, it, he may not get the fair shot in Brooklyn that he might've gotten somewhere else if he were uh, allowed to develop over the course of two or three years. See, my first question to that is, would he even want to be a coach without this perfect scenario for him? Essentially, it's a, And it's a good question. Coaching um, two superstars right off I the bat. I essentially thought he was done with basketball. I mean, I thought yeah, know, maybe, maybe. That was my first maybe, reaction. I mean, I didn't He even, wants to be a coach? I'm surprised. He didn't even seem like a guy who's all that interested in being a basketball analyst. Like He seemed, right. he seemed like a guy who post-retirement soccer was, was going to be his thing. Um, yeah, I mean, look. I, th- I think it's always true. Some people have said, well, why, why does Steve Nash get to be a head coach right away? There are reasons for that. But but I think it is generally true um, that former players get to jump the line. Jason Kidd did. Derek Fisher did. Guys like that. You know, Nash wouldn't mm-hmm. have to be an assistant coach for five or six years like, mm-hmm. um, uh, like non-former NBA players. Um, but even if he had been given the opportunity to kind of grow and develop, like let's say Brooklyn offered him an assistant position under Jacques Vaughn, who, who could have been... Um, you know, more of a veteran coach at that point, and he could have sat on the bench with him and learned for two or three years. Would Nash even have been interested in that position in the first place? Probably yeah. not. No. Yeah. And I think even just the scenario of living in Brooklyn, if Suns fans remember, that's where he lived when he played on the Suns in the offseason. Uh, he lived in Brooklyn. That's somewhere I think he likes to be. So no surprise that he wanted to be there as well. It was kind of a perfect storm for hiring him I think it's important to note that he's an offensive genius uh, mm-hmm. who won two MVPs in the NBA and constantly lauded for his leadership. This guy is a natural leader. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he not only defended Kevin Durant's leaving Oklahoma City to the Warriors, he also, after working for the Warriors, defended Kevin Durant leaving to the Nets. In a sense, he was always on KD's side, and someone like KD recognized that and probably wanted somebody like that on his team in Brooklyn. And I think it's, I honestly, I, I think that it's more likely that this is going to go really well than it's going to go really badly because I think Steve Nash is very good at communicating to basketball players. He's just really good at understanding the sort of, the sort of emotional need. I, I hate to break it down like this, but the emotional need that a lot of NBA players have and then he understands basketball, obviously. And I think they're going to surround him with the right people. They're going to try and win a championship there. So I, if I had to bet, I'd say it's going to go well, but who knows? Yeah, I think Steve Nash has is a, is a basketball genius, obviously. I, I think mostly, though, he's just a really nice guy. Right. You know, how do you steer Kevin Durant? Like, just by virtue of the description you just gave, that kind of makes it sound like Kevin Durant is the one holding all the reins. Again, not Nash. Yeah. So, you know, how do you, how do you steer that team if you're Nash, if you're a rookie coach, uh, how do you steer that team through conflict if the basis of your relationship, the reason you got hired in the first place is because you have this prior history of, of always being behind Kevin Durant and never really, I don't know, I, I mean, is the assumption well, see, there that he's never pushed KD in the past? He's kind of just right. always told him what he wants no, to that's hear. that's interesting, yeah. Because that's, that's a tough relationship to build 
a player-coach relationship on at a successful level in the NBA. Well, I mean, to be honest, that type of dynamic where Kevin Durant is essentially in charge is going to exist with any player. And the and to me, the coach that's most likely to get through to Kevin Durant is one that Kevin Durant trusts and has yeah. an existing relationship with. So, uh, you know, if Steve Nash is that person right now, I'm not sure that he's going to be that person in the future. And I think we're probably going to find out pretty quick because right now it should be said uh, Durant has been out of the NBA longer than anyone ever with an Achilles injury. And we don't know what he's going to look like. And when he comes back, it's going to be expected that they're going to compete for a title. Uh, so the type of spotlight and the type of pressure that are, that is going to be on them right away is going to be huge. And, and I yeah. think, you know, that's going to have a lot of me, burners is, on Twitter. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> that part to me, it's kind of rough, but I, I think it's important that Steve Nash is the type of guy that always says the right thing. Even when he was hired, his statement was, I look forward to being a contributing part of the Brooklyn community. He didn't even mention basketball. Like His focus was like, I want to do the right thing for the city that I live in, which I think is just, it's so Steve Nash. It's like exactly the type of thing he, he does. He says the right thing in every single scenario. And as a coach, I, I you know, I expect him to do that as well. I just think it's such a weird scenario where I had no idea he was even interested. And I do think that there were rumors that Robert Sarver tried to get him to come coach the Suns more than once. I'm glad he didn't. I'm just going to say that right now. So so first of all, what we haven't really touched on to put it in a Suns lens yet is... um, Suns fans are very happy with Monty Williams right now, and you can tell by the fact that Suns fans weren't throwing a fucking fit as soon as we heard this news. Like, could you imagine if it was this time last year and the Suns had just hired Monty Williams before he could give any of us a positive first impression, and then it turned out that Brooklyn went and hired Nash? Um, I think the vast majority of the Suns fan base would be enraged, but again, it comes back to legacy. I I am willing to have my hero... um, have made the contributions that he made all of it's in the past and i don't want any of that potentially tarnished by nash coaching in phoenix i I wish him a great career i hope he goes on to win many championships but but i honestly don't i don't want him in phoenix because i think there's a 99 (laughs) percent chance that that turns into a sour relationship at some point i don't know that i very it's not very often that a coach coaches a team forever yep not many coaches are the next popovich or carlisle or spolstra right the the chances of nash surviving that long are 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 very low um i want to ask you one other thing and then kind of i'm ready to move on from this but Mm -hmm. you know you had a take that i thought was interesting when the news first came out about nash talking about how his leadership style because you talk about him being a very good leader Yeah. which I think anyone would agree with, but but his leadership style being conducive to millennials specifically, and I don't want to turn this into <laughs> you know some sort of okay boomer yeah. generational conflict We're type both, discussion. I'm a millennial, I guess. Are you technically Gen Z or are you a millennial? I'm on. <laughs> I'm. I think I'm literally on the line. Um, right. Where you ask two different people and they'll say I'm two different things. So I'm I'm either the youngest millennial. I'm 22 years old. I'm either right. the youngest millennial or the oldest member of Gen Z. But yeah. Um, but it I applies thought, to both, for the record. Uh, to but, uh, both yeah, millennials but, but and do you want to do you want to ex- expand on that take a little bit? Because I, I thought it was interesting. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I described his, his, okay. So I study leadership styles at, at my job. That's something that I do. Uh, I, I went to a year long leadership seminar thing, basically studying leadership styles. And one of the main leadership styles that we found and, uh, people in business have found to be a, sort of effective with everyone for the record, but especially with millennials and Gen Z is called appreciative inquiry. And what appreciative inquiry does is it focuses on the positive aspects of what people are contributing and instead of focusing on the negative. One of the examples, this is not something I tweeted about if you allow me to go on a little bit of a tangent here. One of the examples given in this was on a mechanic shop and a mechanic shop had about 85 to 90% customer satisfaction. And what they did to test this theory with this mechanic shop is they focused on the 10% things that people were unsatisfied with and they coached all of the people at the business on those 10% of things to try and make those better. They posted signs everywhere talking about what to do to make those things better. Within a short period of time, the overall customer satisfaction went down to like 70%. They switched it around, focused it on the positive things, all the things that they did well, it went up to above 95%. So this is effective business strategy. Uh, But 
it's something that works especially well on millennials because millennials are not afraid to quit a job if they're not satisfied with the way they're being treated as a human, which is not necessarily something from previous generations. Previous generations are like, I go to work, people treat me like shit, I get a paycheck, it is what it is. That's not how millennials are. That's not how Gen Z are. They're more likely to move jobs relatively quickly. And look, if you want to apply this to basketball, you kind of can because players are more willing to move teams if they're not getting what they want out of those teams. Just look at Kawhi Leonard. He's essentially playing on his third team in three years right now. As a superstar, he has that right. LeBron James has moved multiple teams. He has that right. It started probably with Shaq uh, moving teams multiple times. It is what it is. But this sort of style of leadership is something that Steve Nash already is good at. When they started tracking high fives, this is a famous stat, right? Steve Nash high fived the most of anybody in the NBA because he was just somebody that's like ultimately supportive. So I think somebody like Durant, and even if you look at the quotes about what Steve Nash has said supporting him, probably enjoys that style of leadership because, and it does make you better. It can make you better. I'm not sure how any of this can be applied to basketball. And I do wonder... Yeah, but I do well, think that's kind of how Steve Kerr is too, right? No, I, I agree. I think Steve Kerr is exactly that sort of pick-you-up-when-you're-down supportive type of, of right. coach. It's interesting because I think the other breed of player, the so-called old-school mentality, is not entirely dead. And I think there are examples of, of superstars who might be more effective with a little bit of tough love. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's hard. Superstars? I, I don't know. Well, like I, Jimmy Butler is 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 an example of a guy like jimmy butler is a guy who who i kind of imagine like you just kind right. of get him mad if he's making mistakes in a practice and then he'll run <laughs> through 10 walls for right. you and like right. the, the reason jimmy butler didn't work in philadelphia at least according to the rumors is because him and ben simmons had opposite leadership styles or, or at least opposite not opposite leadership styles necessarily right. but how opposite. they want to be yeah Opposite Post. reactions in their ability to handle criticism. Like, you know, right. Ben Simmons didn't want to be called out in a public group chat, for instance, by Jimmy Butler. And so he <laughs> took he took offense to that, which, to, to be fair, I mean, everything I've heard about Jimmy Butler kind of make, makes him sound like an asshole, but he is a very good basketball player. Um, I don't know. It makes you think about situ- other situations like that, though, right? Like, can pairs of superstars coexist if they have different reactions to criticism? Mm-hmm. Do Devin Booker and Deion... This is an entirely different conversation. Oh, no, I, I like I, this. I have no idea how we got here. No, I like it. I, I think... Do what, Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton have... Yeah. I Look, I look at Devin Booker and I kind of see an old school mentality. And I look at DeAndre Ayton and I kind of see a guy who's more of a typical millennial. And yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I don't know what that means for the Suns' future. But I think it's interesting. I, I think 100% yes. I totally agree about those two guys. But I also think... The right leader can understand how to communicate to two people uh, differently and still be effective. Uh, what is important in all of that, and I hate to get all up into this. I have this theory about this, but it's empathy. It's understanding people's emotion. It's, it's an EQ and an emotional intelligence. And that's something that's really important in leadership in general. And I think that's something that Monty Williams has. I think it's something that Steve Kerr has. I think it's something that Steve Nash has. Uh, it's just something that all of the best leaders tend to have. And and I think the right leader, the right coach can still communicate uh, differently in different leadership styles with different people if they understand those people beyond just the basketball talk, right? They have to understand them at an emotional level, which is hard. And I think it's funny that this is the type of thing for basketball coaching that I think has always been very important. And it's also something that is immeasurable, like it's impossible for us to figure out which of these coaches is good, which of these aren't, other than just hearing players talk about it. Like, for example, I think it's Jalen Rose always tells this story. He played briefly on the Spurs. Every time Greg Popovich comes to town, he takes all of the old players that live in that town to dinner because once a spur, always a spur. And there's this, like, beyond relationship that's beyond basketball. And see, it's, it's interesting, too. And I just think that doesn't – see, I do think having that doesn't mean you're going to be a good basketball coach, though. Well, there's no, so because, much more. Because I think there's two guys in Phoenix history who both have that. I think judging right. by the way other guys talk about Monty Williams right now, Chris Paul continues to bring up Monty Williams 10 years later. Right, and, Anthony Davis and talks about him, yeah. Anthony Davis talks about him. I, I think that Monty is very obviously one of those guys. I think Earl Watson was also one of those yeah. guys, though. Yeah, and Earl the Watson players asked for him to coach. And Earl Watson did not have the X's and O's ability that Monty did. So it just kind of proves to you how hard it is to be an NBA coach. You have to succeed on, on multiple levels. 
Yeah, I can't imagine, though. I mean, like, Robert Sarver doesn't have any of this. <laughs> I think, and ultimately, he's at the top, the head of the snake, right? And, like, the chance that Earl Watson got was with one of the worst rosters ever assembled. And then the three games where he got beat by an average of 40 points or whatever was while Sarver was holding his job over his head to fire one of the only black agents in the NBA. So <laughs> that's, I, yeah, I, that's a fair point. I just, not, not saying that Earl Watson is going to be a great coach someday, but I do wonder, like, that's not really a good chance. And I wonder if he'll ever get one again because of Robert Sarver. But who, who, who knows? Um, that was a lot longer on that conversation than I think we planned. I guess it's <laughs> yeah, a theme we, we of this podcast. Some, we took it in some interesting directions. But let's talk, let's about, talk about the playoffs. The playoffs. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been watching a lot of the playoffs. I know you've been watching a lot of it as well. Just to, from a general perspective, what do you think of this playoffs so far? Yeah, I mean, I love it. I, I have to start by saying that I think I made some errors in my assessments of some of these teams. And yeah. you probably get to brag about that a lot more than I do. No, I, I think, still made some errors too. I mean, <laughs> I, haven't I think been I made about a lot. Everything. I think I made a lot more errors than you did, though. <laughs> like I, I went into this playoffs pretty excited about the Milwaukee Bucks, and I think yeah. just from I've what never I've been seen a believer. So far, yeah, I know you have. <laughs> and, yeah. and look, you get to hold that over my head. I think it's made no. um, what we've already seen has has taught me some things about maybe the future. And how I should assess teams going into the playoffs in the future. Not that Milwaukee is out yet, but it's looking likely. Yeah. Uh, I think that Giannis uh, is a... I've always thought he's a flawed superstar. And this is not... Like, this is not a scenario where, like, I think he's a bad player. I think he's still one of the best players in the NBA. But there's something about the playoffs where when things all break down, you need certain kinds of guys that can score. And Giannis is not really that type of guy not saying that he can't score, but there's just limitations to his game that hold him back in the playoffs more than other guys. So when defenses are keyed in on him, I just thought they would fail. And (laughs) ultimately they, they haven't yet. So for the record, if, if there's ever been a scenario where a team can come back from three zero, the bubble is probably it because everything is weird and backwards and the sun's one eight in a row for the first time in 10 years or whatever. Like (laughs) there's so many things that can happen. So we'll see what happens for the record. But I always thought Miami had a chance because of the way they played and, and the way they're coached. I also didn't believe in Bud. Well, and that's why I have to apologize. Like, I think I literally called you an idiot two weeks ago when you said my... <laughs> and I'm surprised you haven't already brought it up if you uh, you weren't harboring a grudge. Like, I think you were like, yeah, Miami can, can definitely beat Milwaukee. And I actually yeah. called you an idiot. So congratulations <laughs> on that one. Um, I think my uh, overall my overall take from the playoffs so far is just like as a non-casual fan... Uh, I have enjoyed living in this era where it's not quite clear who the yeah. best player in the NBA is and who the right. best team even in the NBA is. I think that's been so fun and it gives you so many fresh narratives to play with that we haven't had in quite a while. I think from a ratings perspective, it's probably really bad for the league. And so, you know, my biggest worry about Milwaukee is is not necessarily that I have an attachment to the city of Milwaukee specifically, but that I have yeah. an attachment to Giannis right. being in an actual small market and not running off to LA or, or Golden State, you know, because right. I think that would bring us right back to, to where we were for the past six or seven or eight years. And it would be great for ratings, but not so great for all of us who actually like to watch several teams have a chance at an NBA title. Right. Um, the heat would be fun for him, though. <laughs> for the they record. Would. Uh, but I think you're. I think you're right about that. I, I think that the playoffs have been interesting for me for a lot of reasons. Um, just a lot of my sort of theories about the playoffs are, are being tested in in ways. Some of them proven right. Some of them not. I thought Toronto uh, was had a strong chance to make the finals, and Pascal Siakam has sort of disappeared. I think it's interesting that the Denver Utah series has been the most entertaining of all the series so far. I didn't expect that at all. And that's uh, sort of exactly what I'm talking about, which is like fresh stars. I, I think that series actually got pretty good ratings. Um, yeah. and when that news came out, I was like, wow, Jamal Murray and, and Donovan Mitchell and uh, Nikola Jokic leading an NBA series to good primetime ratings is like really, right. that is really good news for, for the league because those are fresh faces. Yeah, and then you know other things too. Like we've talked about it, uh, just how how far can your team go with your center as your best player? Obviously, we talked about um, Philadelphia, and they they were knocked out. And I think they're an interesting 
case where I think that two of their best players are centers, <laughs> where <laughs> Embiid is the current state of the center position and Ben Simmons is sort of the future state oh, of what the center position you is. You just in keep my pushing it further. He's not even a power forward anymore. He's a center now. That's that's honestly your best case scenario is surround him with shooters and and forwards and yeah. let him sort of be the role man. That's 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 a good scenario for him. And he has the ball. It's not right. It's a center in quotes. It's not quite a center in 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 the traditional sense. But you wrote a piece for Brightside, and I think this is where we want to take this conversation. Learning from the twenty twenty playoffs, and you talk specifically about a few players in that piece. What what is it that spurred that piece? Uh, just, well, my desi- the fact that I have to write a damn article for Brightside every week, um, <laughs> according to my agreement with Dave King. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> obviously, uh, obviously I love writing for analysis for Brightside, but you know, the, what spurred the piece is my desire to take what I'm watching, um, and apply it to, to Phoenix because yeah. I think we're finally, I, I don't think I necessarily would have written this piece last year because we, no. we were just in yeah. a pit of right. despair at the bottom of the Western Conference, and it didn't really right. seem like there was any hope. We were still right. in rebuild mode. But but now that the goal for the Suns next season looks to actually be, hey, let's make the playoffs, um, you would think that Devin Booker would want to spend as much... <laughs> in reality, this hasn't been the case, but you'd think Devin Booker would want to spend as much time watching film right now um, yeah. and figuring out... And not just Booker, but Monty Williams and DeAndre Aiden and all of oh, them. Oh, I'm sure they are, too. Are you sure? <laughs> I'm sure they are, yeah. <laughs> you see the pictures with, with Bieber and, and Kendall? but uh, Of course. No. No, yeah, I'm kidding. I'm sure they're all watching the playoffs. And and so really where the piece came from is just, you know, these are my takeaways from the playoffs so far. Same as you were just saying, you know, some of my theories being tested. Um, and, and then how can we take, uh, you know, it's it like the playoffs is just the most academic experience for any NBA coach. It's the exchange of ideas, just like you would see on, you know, a, the, the idea behind a liberal arts education or a college campus or whatever. This is that in a basketball sense. And it's your excuse if you're a coach to take what you're seeing on screen and kind of steal it without any repercussions for next year. And so I think <laughs> there are there are some things that Monty Williams could steal. And I think there yeah. are some things that guys on this roster could steal um, by learning from other players that would make the Suns better. So that's what inspired yeah. it. <clears throat> First of all, I've been consuming a lot of Kendall Jenner content uh, I know you have. <laughs> on the internet. I watched this video where she gave a tour of her house and uh, she showed her bedroom and there's a massive TV in her bedroom and she pointed at the TV and she said, um, I had them put that here so I can, we can hang out in here and watch basketball. So <laughs> she watches basketball. I'm just okay, saying. I'm sure she does. <laughs> all right. So there was three players that you focused on this article in this article, really two. Uh, but I think you had a great point on the mid-range game for Devin Booker, which we'll get to. But first, let's talk about Cam Johnson. Uh, you made some points on Cam Johnson, and you made a comparison on him. Uh, I'll just let you talk about that first, and we'll dig into it a little bit. Sure. I don't think there's anything crazy here in my analysis. But you know, one of my favorite role players to watch so far in the playoffs has been uh, Duncan Robinson with the Miami Heat. And I think what makes Duncan Robinson so interesting is that he is kind of like an old prototype that we've seen of a, of a movement shooter. Like, you know, think J.J. Redick, think Clay Thompson even, um, but then make that player even bigger. Um, he's in a six foot eight frame. He's above 200 pounds, and, and he just has the agility to be able to move around and come off screens and take the ball off a handoff and, and do a pull-up three. And, and he's, he's moving and relocating um, with such a, such a mastery of the art at this point that even though he isn't like the primary guy that you would focus in on anytime you turn on a heat game, like even if he's not scoring 20 or 25 points, you can look at any given offensive possession mm-hmm. and see just how much he's moving around the court. Right. And the fact that he is doing that in a six, eight frame is so interesting because I think at the NBA level, it's relatively unprecedented. Um, cause I think he's kind of at the intersection of being able to see over defenses cause he's a taller guy, right. but still be able to move like a guard and still be able to survive. This is the big one. Still be able to survive on the perimeter. He's not a good defender, but he's a passable defender in that system. Mm-hmm. And so guys like that who are that tall, you know, because like, for instance, we just released a video last week on Davis Bertans um, about his fit on the Suns and, and kind of who he is as a player. We had a whole mm-hmm. conversation about it on this podcast, too. Davis Bertans is a phenomenal movement shooter, but he he can't move laterally defensively. Right. And so if you can find six foot eight guys who can survive on the perimeter um on defense at the nba level but still shoot like duncan robinson does that's kind of like in my mind that's almost the real unicorn um yeah and and yeah so i mean like 
I think Cam Johnson, to connect it to the Suns, I think my idea is, well, Cam Johnson is also six foot eight, and he profiles at about the same size as, as Duncan Robinson. And I think mm-hmm. judging from what we saw from him in year one, he can do all of the same stuff and he can run the same routes and he can come off screens and he can take handoffs. Okay. And he's ready I want to ask the- you about that. Sure. Do you do you think he is capable of moving off the ball the way Duncan Robinson is? No. Like, are you sure about that? Yeah, <laughs> I guess no is your answer. Uh, my answer is no. My my answer is that Duncan Robinson, I think, is the best example we may have ever seen of this at yeah. a guy his size. So yeah. for the expectation to be that Cam Johnson could just try, or that Mont- more specifically that Monty Williams, because it all starts with Monty Williams. Monty Williams has to start running plays. This is the main thing that Miami does with Duncan Robinson that Phoenix doesn't do with Cam still. Monty needs to start running plays where it's like the idea is to open up Cam Johnson. And and there are always other other secondary and tertiary options. But it's like, let's set these pin down screens. Let's get Cam open. And he is, this is a play for him as a shooter. Duncan Robinson, as I was saying, is maybe the best example at his size of being able to do that ever. So the expectation that Cam could get to that point next year, I think, is is ridiculous. Right. Um, but you yeah. have to try, and you don't know until you try. And I think there is a chance that he is a solid fraction of what Duncan Robinson is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he can be that, I think you have to take that chance. And, and I think next year would be the perfect time to start exploring that. I think he basically, Cam did, I'm talking about Cam now, mastered this year just being a 40% catch-and-shoot, basic spot-up, three-point shooter. Right. We knew he was going to be that coming into the league, but right. he's ready for a bigger challenge, and yes. it's up to Monty really to give it to him. Yeah, I, I I agree with all of that, and I think just Dunk, what Duncan Robinson is doing is like replicable, replicable to a point. Like It's not going to be... Like, for example, a lot of the pin-downs and running around screens off the ball... Without the without the ball, I think Cam Johnson can probably do as early as next season. What I think is actually relatively difficult and something that uh, is like a remarkable thing that they do, and you found some clips of it, is the sort of dribble handoff action between Bam Adebayo and Duncan Robinson. Yeah, they love that. Yes, and navigating that two-man game basically without dribbles is such a fascinating <laughs> and difficult thing to do. <laughs> and very few yeah. players are capable of doing it but I do think that it's something that Cam Johnson can get relatively good at. Like like you said, putting the ceiling at Duncan Robinson is putting the ceiling really, really high. But I think that's the type of action that, like DeAndre Ayton's a wider body than Bam Adebayo already. So mm-hmm. if he can land that screen right and if they can work that game right, I think that could be a really interesting option, especially with the right cutters on the opposite side of the floor and yeah. using DeAndre Ayton. In fact, we're going to talk about that in a second a little bit more as a playmaker, because I think he's got, I just think that's something he has to work on, which we'll talk about in a second, like I said. But uh, I just wanted to point out, like a lot of people might look at Cam Johnson and say, why aren't they doing more of this? Well, because it's hard. <laughs> that's like the main, main thing. And I think you can still work some more of that into his game later, but developing the type of thing that Duncan Robinson is doing is really difficult. Similar yeah, and- route that they took to to the NBA, by the way. Duncan Robinson, I think, was a 25-year-old rookie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, it was just kind of funny. Yeah, and, and just to put the stat there with the handoffs you were talking about, first of all, I think it's really funny because you, you were saying doing it with zero dribbles. Um, the thing that makes Duncan distinct is, yeah, he's not doing pull-up threes like like Damian Lillard or um, or Steph Curry or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's, he's really taking the ball from Bam on a handoff and shooting it without any dribbles. And as I was watching the clips and I was looking at all these examples of him doing it on about half of the clips, it would be like an opposing team's announcer being like, isn't that a travel? You know, like it is something <laughs> that he gets away with a decent right. amount when it's maybe right. arguably on the cusp of being, you know, legit in the rule book. But um, the yes. statistic there is Duncan Robinson attempted 164 threes this year off of those types of handoffs, Jeez. most That's... of which he took from Bam, but, but any big will suffice. And Cam right. had 19. Right, this um, is in and, a 72-game uh, season, where so more than yeah. two a game, basically. Yeah, and, and, and with the off-screen plays, too, because the NBA or uh, Synergy tracks those as well, those are any plays where it's not just a basic, not a basic spot-up opportunity. It's like you're running some sort of route, and you come off a screen, and then you catch right. and shoot. On those types of plays, Duncan had 136 three-point attempts, and Cam had 38. So, that, you know, that's just to right. demonstrate that right. there's a wide gap between what these two guys are doing right now. Right. Both of them are 40% three-point shooters, but Duncan hitting 40% of those types of threes mm-hmm. versus Cam mm-hmm. hitting 40% of the threes that he hits, there's there's a difference there in what they're capable of doing. Yeah, I that's a, that's an excellent point, and I, I look forward to see 
what type of development they're going to get out of Cam Johnson this offseason because I think they drafted him for this reason already. I don't think that's right. a coincidence. And I and obviously the playoffs is showing it, but even without that, I think this is coming for Cam. We talked about it already. Yeah. I feel like I could remember all 38 of those off-screen threes. Yeah, no. Every <laughs> single time it happened, we got super excited. And you know, like, the reason he, he might not be as good as Duncan, like, we can be brutally honest and say one of the reasons Cam Johnson fell in the draft or that scouts weren't so high on him in the first place is, A, yes, the fact that he's older, um, but also the hip mobility. And, you know, right, supposedly agility. there was some agility. Yeah. There were some red flags. But I think a lot of my worries... Um, <sighs> A lot of my word, like, wouldn't it wouldn't it have been obvious by now if those were such glaring issues um, given by sort of his defense? I think the fact that he was willing to, or not just willing, the fact that he was so structurally solid on defense in year one, even if he wasn't necessarily a lockdown defender because he wasn't, um, should kind of point to the fact that he should be able to move in, in the same way that Duncan does on offense as well. I don't know, just spitballing at this point, but right, but yeah, I think last I think he question can get there. on that. Yeah, sure. Uh, are you prepared to hear Eddie Johnson rant about this when Cameron Johnson and DeAndre and pass the ball back and forth to each other 10 <laughs> times with neither of them dribbling towards the basket to try and get yeah. an open three? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely going to happen. But, you know, point five <laughs> is pass, dribble, or shoot. And so, right. you know, if you've got a guy who's a great shooter, then spam the third option every time. It's going to work. Yep. yep. You've counted on restaurants. Now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery too. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local spot, and your food is on the way. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code BLUEWIRE. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, the code is BLUEWIRE for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Sunday, Sunday, Sundays are coming back in the NFL. With NFL Sunday TV. you can stream every live out-of-market NFL game every Sunday afternoon on your favorite devices, plus Red Zone and DirecTV Fantasy Zone channels. Never miss your favorite teams and favorite players. No matter where you live, NFL Sunday TV is your key to the most glorious Sundays ever. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout to get 15% off your subscription. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use the promo code BLUEWIRE. All right, next guy I wanted to talk about and somebody that you had in your article here was DeAndre Ayton. And uh, what did you, let's hear what you talked about in the article first and then let's dig into that too. Yeah, I think the guy to compare DeAndre Ayton here to is Anthony Davis and I think, you know, it's not a perfect comparison because Anthony Davis is still playing power forward um, for the Los Angeles Lakers and DeAndre Ayton at the very least is playing center for, for the Phoenix Suns. But I think the reason you can draw a comparison there is because it's clear that these are two guys who don't always want to play like bigs and I think it was especially interesting that we got the Lakers Rockets series um that that I think a lot of people were sort of hoping for in the second round because on the one hand small ball for the for the Rockets has been very successful uh against the Lakers specifically they've they've done a great job against the Lakers this season using that small ball approach on the other hand on paper I think it's so easy for Anthony Davis to be an impact superstar against the Houston Rockets and it's all about a mental thing for him and it's entirely not about his you know physical abilities and so I think that's what what makes him similar to DeAndre Ayton like I think DeAndre Ayton is capable of being a 30 point per game player but he might not want to play the way the glamorous sort of way or the unglamorous sort of way that it would take to get him there like Houston switches everything the thing I talked about in the article is that Houston switches everything defensively Anthony Davis, what, what the Lakers did at times in their regular season matchups against the Lakers um, is they would, you know, they would slip 
pick and rolls with uh, with Anthony Davis. And, and because Houston didn't have any sort of low help, because they're such a vertically challenged team, Robert Covington obviously is the best they have. He can come over as a weak side defender and he's good at kind of picking off passing lanes, but even he isn't really able to be like a rim protector um, the way that you would right. expect a center to be. Right. Because the Rockets specifically, they are the epitome of small ball and they are such a vertically challenged team. Anthony right. Davis, if he wanted to, could slip screens against the Houston Rockets all night and catch lobs, and he could get to 25, 30 points, in my opinion, efficiently just by catching lobs, and Houston wouldn't be able to react because they simply do not have the resources to do so. What frustrates people about Anthony Davis and the way he's playing right now is that he's relying on the mid-range jumper as a crutch. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, honestly, I, I didn't watch all of yesterday's game. Um, the Lakers won, and um, I did see highlights of, of the parts of the game that I missed, and Anthony Davis was hitting nice turnaround mid-range jumpers. Like, yeah. it was working for him yesterday. He was doing exactly g- what Houston wanted him to do, though. There are Yeah, there are going <laughs> to be games where that works because yeah. he's such a talented player that, if that he, he makes was able that- to make it work anyway. If he makes that the rest of the playoffs, they win a title. But sure. he's not going to. I don't, you know. Sure. Like, but I think on the nights where it doesn't work, and I think the math proves that, generally speaking, it doesn't work. Anthony Davis this this year shot like 35% in the mid-range. DeAndre Ayton also shot roughly 35% in the mid-range. Meanwhile, if these two guys are two of the best pick-and-roll finishers in the NBA, you somehow yeah. have to get through to yeah. them. And, and I don't understand. That's the part I struggle with is I don't understand why it's right. so hard to get through to them. Yeah. But some somehow you have to do that and be like, look, maybe it's not glamorous. Maybe you feel like you're playing like Rudy Gobert or Clint Capella or something right now if you're just catching lobs all day. But if that's the best thing for you to do for our team so that we can win the game, that's what we need you to do and, and kind of cut out the crap, which is the 16-foot mid-range jumpers. So, you know, well, watching Anthony Davis right now, the interesting thing to me is is like he's getting – and part of it is because he's a he's a Los Angeles Laker. But he's getting so much crap for taking like five mid-range shots a game when he's still averaging 10 free throws um, as well because of how aggressive he is. And it made me think next year if we see DeAndre Ayton in the playoffs and he's doing the same thing where he's taking five or six mid-range shots, but he's also only getting at the free throw line only two or three times a game. Right. Um, And that's really when the pressure starts to mount on him as a number one overall pick and he's expected to play a certain way and with a certain edge and aggressiveness. And I worry about him being able to bring that to the table in a playoff setting. You know... I understand why you chose Anthony Davis. And I think it's interesting that you did because you were able to sort of point out something that they could do to change their game plan. But that's an interesting thing where it's almost as if you're saying that they're similar and you're comparing them because of the things that Anthony Davis is doing wrong in this series, which I find (laughs) interesting. The player I've been looking at, the player I want him to emulate is Bam Adebayo, and it's not just mm-hmm. because of the here's here's the main thing, right? Bam Adebayo is actually relatively small for a center; he's six foot eight. But DeAndre, and even though he's big, he's really mobile. He's got a lot of the mobility, at least without the ball, that Bam Adebayo has. He's able to switch. He's able to guard guards, and we'll see that tested at some point in the future, right? Because it's a little different to switch in the regular season than in the playoffs. Because when you're switching in the playoffs, you're guarding Chris Paul like you know, 15 times a game rather than one or two times or whatever it is. Uh, and the games become a lot more important. I think he's still capable of switching on to that. Offensively, though, I want to talk about it. We know what we want out of him defensively. I think we all understand that at this point. The way that the Miami Heat use Bam Adebayo is really interesting. One, he he's kind of the point guard on that team. He grabs the ball off the rim on a rebound. He'll dribble it down. Nothing insane, like not Giannis full speed attacking the rim, but just sort of keeping his head up. And what they do commonly is they'll give him the ball in the high post. It tends to be on the wings or at the at the nail, as they call it. And they'll run cuts just around him with shooters and elite cutters, and he finds guys in that position. And Bam, I think, capable of shooting the mid-range is also important for his game because if nothing opens up and they back way off him, he's willing to shoot that mid-range shot, which I still think DeAndre Ayton has to shoot. I know it's a little annoying at this point, but if you use it right, it's still important. It just has to be your last option in all scenarios. It's, but it's yeah, no, keep going. You're I think the, the main thing is 
to me, the future of this team is point book. It just is. Imagine a scenario where DeAndre Ayton has the ball in the high post. Say he develops some sort of dribble drive game. That's that's the vital, vital thing for this. And we can talk about why that's important because all of these guys need to work on a little bit. They're all young. They're not finished products here. Say he has a dribble drive game. He's holding the ball 18 feet away from the basket on the wing. Now, now you're running Cam Johnson on, on cuts. You're running Kelly Oubre. You're running Devin Booker. You're running Mikhail Bridges. Basically, you've surrounded him by four wings that are capable shooters and elite cutters for a lot of these guys. That is a fascinating prospect to me. You have to take. You probably have to take Ricky Rubio off the court in this scenario. He's not much of a cutter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, that's the type of mold that works the best in this NBA. He has to be used a little bit more as a playmaker. I think what's interesting about a lot of bigs in the NBA is the way people talk about it is they commonly say they have to be great shooters. They have to shoot the three. And while that's partially true, I think what gets lost in that a little bit is that big men also now have to be really good passers. That's something that's developed a lot because with the ball in your hands, you become more of a threat automatically. You have the ball. But if you're surrounded by guys who can shoot, cut, drive everything, then everyone becomes a threat. And now you have to be able to pass the ball for them to be a threat. So I still think he needs to be used. I've been saying it for a while. He needs to be used more as a playmaker. I think he's capable. He's big. He can throw the pass pretty, like he throws hot passes, right? He can get the ball to guys pretty quickly. Sometimes in scenarios where we don't want him to. Uh, But I think that's the mold to me. It's Bam Adebayo more than it is uh, Anthony Davis. And to your credit, by the way, you want Anthony Davis to play more like Bam Adebayo in this yeah, scenario. Yeah, of course I do. Because he and, rolls to the rim a lot. You know, Jokic is another good example of it too. DeAndre Aiden's never going to have Nikola Jokic's vision, but I think he's the same sort of player you're talking about. He right. generates so much from the elbows. Nikola Jokic shot 31% on threes this year. You know, yeah, you and I think 54% them. from mid-range, by the way. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. So he's he's not that amazing of a shooter though um at yeah. least not from not from the longest range but no. he makes it work because you put him in a playmaking position and he finds other guys around him and just you know to add on to what you're saying another point is you surround them with shooters you surround them with uh uh with cutters but sometimes just making simple reads is okay and if you yes. if you have a center who's comfortable right. the other thing that's important for these centers and, and it's something that bam and Jokic both share from the elbow position is you can make a simple read just like we were talking about with bam and duncan robinson before um, screens are so important yes. because you can, as long as you have other guys around you who have that dribble drive ability as guards, even if they're not the primary option, your ability to give a handoff to them in the elbow area um, from the nail and kind of have them curl around and, and create either mid-range jumpers or, or go all the way to the basket, um, or in the case of Duncan Robinson, finish with a three is so effective because we're in an era where it's really hard to be an NBA center. And I think that's that's the other reason I was starting with talking about Anthony Davis is because I don't know if you saw, but you probably did. Draymond Green tweeted yeah. a few days yeah. ago about this series is the litmus test for the value of an NBA center. And we're in an era right. where we keep trying to take things away from the big man. We keep trying to yeah. take things that they learned from the time they first picked up a basketball and say, no, that, that doesn't work anymore. The post up, no, don't do that. That doesn't work anymore. The, uh, the mid-range turnaround, no, don't do that. That doesn't work anymore. But what we don't talk about enough is the fact that the screen and having guys yeah. who can set competent screens if they're young Absolutely. is more important than it's ever been at the NBA level before because we're uh-huh. living in an era where pull-up three-point shooting is the game-breaker. If you have a pull-up three-point shooter, you can destroy any defense no matter what coverage they're throwing at you in the NBA, but you need a guy who can create that space for them in the first place. Yeah, And so it's very, very important for DeAndre Ayton to, to continue to develop that ability. Um, and he's gotten better at that too. He has. No, yeah. he has. Yeah. I, I, first of all, the Suns are not in the playoffs right now because of the pull up three pointer. <laughs> you know, because that, of Damian that, Lillard, you're exactly, saying. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's, that's the shot that, that changes everything. But I think you're right. I'll say it again. I've said it a bunch of times on this podcast. The screen is the most underrated thing that happens on the basketball court. It just is. And if you need any proof of that, watch footage of the 73 win Warriors. <laughs> Just right. watch that. That's well, all and, you really need. And it's like, you know, the thing that gets the thing that people lose sight of in all the talks about Houston and is Houston the future of the NBA? Is everyone going to go small? The reason that Houston's offense works is because they have the greatest outlier in the history of the NBA as an isolation score. 
James Harden is not like most mm-hmm. players. Now, are more are more and more players going to enter the league who try and copy his style and be able yeah. to create with the step back three and isolate in the way that he does? Absolutely. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Houston creates an unprecedented, unprecedented amount of their offense through isolation. Most guards in the NBA can't do that. Even Steph Curry and Damian Lillard can't do yeah. that. And so no. the big man still has value in the NBA just by virtue of the fact that someone needs to be opening up the guard if the guard is going to be the primary option. So, you know, I want right. to make it clear. Like, it's not like any of us are saying, we're not saying DeAndre Ayton doesn't have value, that no. the future of the NBA center is P.J. Tucker, not DeAndre Ayton. DeAndre no. Ayton can dominate the game in so many ways. Oh, Absolutely. But- we're if just you, admitting that it's a more challenging path for him to get there in 2020. Yes. I mean, we're all navigating this new kind of era at the same time, and, and some stuff is going to work and some stuff isn't going to work. If you picture DeAndre Ayton as a supersized Bam Adebayo, that's, I mean, every single team in the NBA would want that if he's capable of doing that, especially if you add like a semi-competent three-point shot to that. That's that's a pretty effective player. But he's got a lot to work on to do that. As we talked about with Cam Johnson, working on his off-ball movement. I don't know if we singled it out exactly. But to me, that's the most important thing for uh, his future on this team. Figure out how to do a lot of the things that Devin Booker has now figured out how to do. And if you watch Jimmy Butler, another guy that's like absolutely elite at off-ball movement, especially for a guy who doesn't really shoot threes, figure out how to do that stuff, the Duncan Robinson stuff, and that'll improve you. For DeAndre Ayton, this is on Monty and Ayton. Use him more as a playmaker. I think that's something he needs to do. And he's got to be able to dribble. Obviously, we've talked about this before, so we don't have to focus on this. But if he's a playmaker from that sort of 18-foot range, it means that he has to be capable of attacking if that opens up for him. He can't for just sure. shoot that over and over. And Dribbling so those are two main the, things. the key distinction to me between mid-range shots. You know, people think I don't like mid-range shots or, or people think NBA nerds in general don't like mid-range shots. To me, it's if a guy can dribble then more likely than not, I'm going to like his mid-range shot. As long as yeah. he's not completely overdoing it. Like, obviously, I don't want to go build my team around DeMar DeRozan's in 2020. But but for the most point, uh, most part, if you can dribble, I like your mid-range shot. And if you can't, then I don't. And it's really that simple because if you can dribble, you can create other options besides that. And you're not so predictable that the defense just has to put a hand up and, and wait for you to brick it 65% of the time, which right now is what happens with DeAndre Ayton, um, but doesn't happen with Devin Booker. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the truth is <laughs> the real future of the center position as far as super, super, superstar centers it's to me, <laughs> it's, it's Giannis, basically. Giannis plays yeah. like a center. I mean, he's like Shaq. And it's, it's like I said, it's Ben Simmons, in my opinion. Philadelphia did everything wrong as far as the modern NBA, in my <laughs> opinion. They should have went smaller with everyone but him. Uh, those are the type of guys. Now, Aiton is not necessarily going to be one of those guys, but there's a path for him being a really, really valuable playoff performer at some point in his career. And those are the things I think we need to work on just watching these playoffs. First of all, that was a great conversation, Aiton. That was really interesting. Uh, I'm just patting ourselves on the back a little bit. Yeah, I'll, let, I'll let the listeners be the judge of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting to me. For the record, for those who... Uh, don't aren't able to see our Google Doc here. Sam and I really didn't prepare at all for this podcast. We're shooting from the hip here, but we have lots of thoughts on it. So it's kind of a conversation that I think flows nicely. And I know you do too, by the way. People listening, if you have thoughts on any of this, feel free to tweet at us. I think this conversation can go a lot of different directions. Uh, if you have thoughts on what players uh, either of these guys we've talked about so far need to emulate, let's talk about it. The next guy we have to talk about is Devin Booker. And I think what's been interesting about what's happened with Devin Booker, you talked about it a little bit in the uh, article that you wrote. The mid-range game is still alive and well in the playoffs. It still exists. It's it's something that happens in uh, the playoffs where defenses are so, 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 so locked in, so focused on stopping the three-pointer and shots at the rim, the two most efficient shots in the NBA, that you have to have players who are good at taking advantage of the mid-range, especially in isolation, because that's going to be open at some points. Remember that the isolation mid-range shot is the reason that LeBron James won a title. They took away the threes. They took away his path to the rim, the Spurs did, and he had to score them over and over again. His Mm -hmm. second title, I guess, OKC was a little easier to get rid of. Devin Booker's still really great at that. 
that's something that he can do right away. To be honest, the way his offense works is tailor-made for the playoffs. What do you think about Devin Booker as far as in context of what he will look like in the playoffs? Well, I think I said in the article that I'd bet my life savings that he's going to be good in the playoffs. So, (laughs) you know, hopefully I haven't changed my opinion that quickly. Um, I think, yeah, I think he's going to be really good. I compared him to Kawhi Leonard. I think Kawhi is, is the perfect example of that right now. Look, Kawhi shoots the bed sometimes. You know, he just shot four for 17 the other night. Yeah. Um, Jeremy Grant locked him up. But yeah, and uh, the, the entire defense was keyed in on him too. I think yeah, they, and that's, they that's were the almost playing thing. him like Giannis. It wasn't that Jeremy, it wasn't actually. I say Jeremy Grant yeah. locked him up. Jeremy Grant didn't actually lock him up. Jeremy Grant just stayed in front of him and he had help, yeah, <laughs> which they, is they the, the critical thing. Yeah, no, no one can lock up Kawhi Leonard one-on-one, just like no right. one can lock up exactly. LeBron James one-on-one. Right. Um, yeah, but so, you know, is there potential to have stinkers occasionally playing like that? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, Devin Booker has that triple threat. I mean, you d- you're the one who can talk about it. You did that whole video for our YouTube channel about a month ago now. And his his ability to create from the triple threat position, you know, from yeah. the elbow or the low block on, on either right. side is really kind of unprecedented for a shooting guard in, in today's NBA. And right. that's what makes him so fascinating as a player. You know, in addition to that, Booker definitely has a reputation as a shooter that he has maybe not actually earned. He's a very good catch-and-shoot shooter. Like, you know, if Ricky Rubio is running in transition and he finds Devin Booker on the wing, Devin Booker's going to hit that open transition three most of the time. Or you can run plays for Devin Booker running off screens. That happens from time to time for the Suns. But the last part of Booker's offensive game, and in addition to that, he's um, also one of the most efficient guards in in the entire NBA, like historically so. He's, He's been amazing inside of five feet. So the last part of his game that he has to unlock to make him actually unstoppable literally this is the only thing the only thing he has to take care of on offense yeah um is the pull up three right um he's still not that good at those to be right. honest and mm-hmm. and if he was just a little bit better at those like if you know not Lillard levels necessarily but if he was a little bit better yeah. at those he would be an unstoppable MVP offensive player if he was Lillard level good at the pull up three pointer, he'd be the best offensive player in the NBA, and I, I'm fully confident saying I that. Agree, I agree with you because he would be he would be dangerous from every spot on the floor, and there's not yeah, a single other including player in the 35 NBA. feet, right? Yeah, because <laughs> that's mean, what Lillard was good at, and that's without Lillard, a screen. Lillard doesn't take mid range shots the way that Booker does. Giannis isn't able to shoot outside of 10 feet. Harden doesn't take mid range shots. Right. If Devin Booker mastered the pull up three somehow, if he came into year six with that ability then he is the greatest in offensive player of his generation. I, I really think he would be. I think the end, people who analyze the NBA often underrate the difference between six foot one and six foot five or six foot six or whatever Devin Booker is. That's a big difference. And that matters specifically when trying to create for yourself from the mid-ranger at the rim. That's why he's capable of doing stuff like that better than a guy like Damian Lillard. And if he can add that sort of Damian Lillard pull-up three-pointer, that would matter a lot as well. I think... You brought up the sort of triple threat position, the sort of high post where he can catch the ball, he can post up, he can face up, he can do everything. Watch the video if you haven't seen it. It's um, something or about post up triple threats. I don't know how Dev- <laughs> how Devin Booker scores part one. I'm gonna do more of those in the future. I, I don't remember what I said anymore. <laughs> here's here's the here's the part that's interesting. Just just an observation on the difference between the regular season and the playoffs. What you can do in the regular season is Devin Booker can catch the ball. There's the famous clip uh, against the Mavericks where he hit Justin Jackson with that step back. And it was back-to-back possessions where Devin Booker isolated from that sort of Kobe Bryant mid-range area. But what's interesting now is if you watch those clips, you'll notice that the rest of the Suns players are just essentially standing around, which is fine for the regular season. And what I mean by that is defenses play it differently in the playoffs Devin Booker's isolating for mid-range. The defenses, if they're standing around, they're going to key in on them. What's important, and this is something that the Clippers need to do, and maybe they're doing it right now, we're recording during that game, is when Kawhi isolates from that mid-range, you have to have off-ball action on the weak side of the floor in the playoffs because you have to take up the attention of the defenders on the floor. If you're not doing that, close game. I'm sorry. (laughs) If you're not, maybe we should watch the end live on the podcast here. Denver's Uh, down by one, seven minutes left. Interesting. Who's going to (laughs) win? Keep going. It's just an interesting thing where you just sort of notice those differences in the playoffs. You have to have that weak side action in the playoffs where in the regular season, 
the games are not as important. Maybe the players are letting themselves feel a little bit more tired than they wouldn't. That's the difference. That's the main difference between the playoffs and the regular season. But you're right. I don't think there's a lot to talk about. I think with Devin Booker, he's going to be great right away. And I think what we saw in the bubble from him defensively is that he has the ability of focusing on defense over long stretches of the game where he's never going to be... Like, I think a lot of the model of how to play offensively for Devin Booker in the playoffs has been Jason Tatum so far. He's been really great. Uh, but, like, Jason Tatum has defensive abilities that Devin Booker isn't just being taller and being longer. So he's never going to be quite that level of defender. But being focused constantly is something that is important from him. And here's the thing is I believe that he will. I'm not really doubting that. I think he's very capable of that. It's just translating that to the regular season a little bit more will help get them to the playoffs. And I think next season is going to be a real test of his ability to stay focused on defense over extended periods of time over the course of the season. We have a few more guys to talk about, Sam. Should we just take this into our next week's episode and not make people listen to an hour and 45 minutes of this right now? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good idea. Honestly, I, I have a lot of takes about Monty Williams, but we yeah, we, and I want to talk about Kelly Oubre. I want to talk about talk Ricky about Rubio. I want to talk about Mikhail Bridges, but yeah, okay. I think how about, yeah, how about this? I mean, this should show you, we don't, we don't actually plan our episodes all that much. Um, <laughs> we, we can take this into next week. And in the meantime, hopefully people give us uh, some of their takes about what they think the rest of the core players on this roster need yeah. to improve in yeah, years and, time in order yeah. to be playoff contributors. Absolutely. And what we're looking at, too, the three questions that Sam and I are kind of looking at for this conversation to help people who want to participate in this conversation with us online. Uh, What are these players good at now? Like, what could they contribute in the playoffs right now? What do they need to work on over the course of the offseason going into next season? And what's the mold? Like, what players can you compare these guys to that are currently in the playoffs uh, that can make you believe that this type of play will be successful. So yeah, the guys and, that we're going to talk about, Ricky Rubio, Mon- or sorry, Monty Williams, we got to talk about, Kelly Uber Jr., Mikhail Bridges, and any other players. If you have other players that you think will for sure be on the Suns next season, because we don't know outside of these guys. Javon um, Carter, lifetime Javon, contract. Yeah, yeah <laughs> lifetime contract for Javon <laughs> Carter. Uh, Cameron Payne getting paid $40 next season, so he'll probably be back. Uh, but yeah, uh, just uh, if you Poku. have any thoughts on these guys, <laughs> yeah, Poku thoughts um, on Poku for next year. No, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the, and the, uh, the last thing I'll say, I guess, is the idea with the comparisons, it's, it's like the draft, you know, when you give a, a player comparison to a prospect in the draft, yeah. the idea isn't that you're pigeonholing them or right. boxing them in. The right. idea is just that, uh, like I said, at the beginning of the episode, that the playoffs is an exchange of ideas. You can steal aspects of another player's game. The goal isn't to become a clear copycat. But Absolutely. That's, that's what it is. Uh, these guys, I think you mentioned it. These guys watch film, right? They're watching film. And essentially the point is, what can they watch in these players' films, in film sessions that they can learn from and take it into their season next year and prepare for the playoffs? Because now they know what works in the playoffs and what doesn't. The fact is, most of these players playing in the playoffs this year are going to be playing in the playoffs next year. So you need to learn from what's working now because you might be playing against those guys next season and and we can only cross our fingers and hope and if if chris paul gets traded that makes it a little more likely although the warriors are coming back too but this will be an interesting conversation to take i'm not surprised that we were able to get an hour out of just a few players here because it's just a fascinating uh thing to sort of picture but any other thoughts before we uh end this one sam it's all for me for this week all right feel free to reach out to us appreciate you for listening everyone and we'll be back to talk about the rest of the core guys next week the wait is finally over football is back you may not be at a game this year but you can still be in the action at bet online bet online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props bet online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, divisions, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Well, I'll start off by saying this. Do not blame that game on the defense, okay? I don't care 
who you play, whether it's a high school team, a junior college team, a college team, you ain't gonna beat anybody I just talked about. Anybody. All right? And that was a disgraceful performance, in my opinion. We threw that game. We gave it away by doing that. We gave them the friggin' game. In my opinion, that sucked. What's that? Uh, playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. Playoffs? 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 Play, 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 playoffs? Hey guys, it's Mike. As you know, I adopted my pup Rocky from a local rescue. Now, when people ask me what kind of dog Rocky was, I was always stumped. I used an Embark Dog DNA test to decode my most puzzling questions about Rocky. You can also learn about your dog's inner secrets with Embark, the highest rated dog DNA test. Unlock over 350 breeds and screen for over 200 genetic health risks. Save $50 on a breed and health kit with promo code KIT at EmbarkVet.com. Again, that's promo code KIT. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.